Welcome to FRT episode 85. I'm Brad Carr of the IF in Washington. My colleagues Natalia and Dennis kick us off for the new year with the first episode of 2021, and I hope you're keeping safe and healthy as we mobilise for the new year. I'm joined today by Terry Angelos in the San Francisco Bay Area. Terry is the global head of fintech at Visa, and indeed he's been at the cutting edge of fintech and payments innovation for really all of his career, including as a founder and CEO of TrialPay, which Visa acquired back in 2015. And if you follow IAF webinars as well as our podcasts, you may recall seeing Terry along with Senator Jane Hume, the Australian Minister for Fintech, when we discussed the future of fintech back in July. Terry, thanks for joining us and welcome to FRT. Great to be here, Brent. We should probably get our uh, our accents out of the way. I think that's an Australian accent on your side, a South African one on my side, and uh, connecting over uh, a web connection somewhere in the States. That's the IAF. We cover all parts of the world, as indeed does Visa. So uh, a good synergy there. Um, Terry, you and your Visa colleagues are working on some fascinating innovations and, and doing so together with a pretty extensive range of, of different partners, um, which I'd like to get into. I also want to pick up from that webinar last year about the work that you were doing in linking up a lot of the different national or domestic payments innovations uh, and bringing those to, to connectivity across borders. But to start, perhaps if we could step back a little bit and look across the broader fintech ecosystem, could I ask you, what, what are the key trends you're seeing in the fintech space? And, and as we move into 2021, what are some of the, the verticals that you see as most promising? Yeah, thanks, Brad. So if you look at some of the trends that were started in 2020, especially around COVID, I think we see a couple that, uh, that stand out for us. You know, the first is the, the digitization of banking and payments is going to continue to accelerate. I don't think we go back to bank branches in the same way that we did pre-COVID. And there's really two reasons for that. You know, one is that branches really were on the decline pre-COVID. In the U.S., branches peaked in about uh, 2012 with about 82,000 bank branches and has been dropping since down to 76,000 in uh, 2019. So we expect those branches to get smaller and a lot more niche. And then secondly, you know, digital banking has gotten a lot better. The apps that everybody's using is a lot more robust. There's been this big shift of internal resources from banks into their digital channels. You know, you can now just bank on your app. You can invest, send money, apply for a loan, et cetera. And then, of course, payments has become a lot more digital. You know, it's hard to subscribe to Netflix or Spotify with cash. And so, you know, globally, uh, we've seen at Visa, millions of cardholders use their cards for the first time online because of some of the need to kind of stay at home. So that's a trend we, that was accelerating pre-COVID that we think will continue. From our perspective, there's about $17 trillion in consumer payments that are still made every year in cash and check and about 1.7 billion people that are outside the formal financial sector. So there's this huge opportunity to have this you know, digitization of banking and payments bring folks into the financial ecosystem. And we think there's value to, to the consumers and the merchants in that process. You know, another area that I would say has been accelerated by COVID, but, but was also there prior, is around payroll and payroll going real time. You know, in the pandemic, there's been this theme of the acceleration of money. Uh, there's a trend that was started with uh, contract workers who really would like to get paid on demand, right? So if I'm an Instacart driver and I've worked for you know 15 hours um, you know this month, 
I don't need to wait for the end of the month cycle in order to get paid. And many of those companies are using tools, for example, from Visa, like Visa Direct, to push payroll onto Visa debit cards. And that's effectively moving payroll into this kind of you know, real-time cycle. That's beginning to move to salaried employees. So, for example, companies like Chime and Varo are offering their customers access to their paycheck before the funds have actually arrived in the bank. And so there's about a two-day cycle there, which neobanks are starting to winnow down. So we think that'll, that'll continue. Uh, just to give you a sense for this, there's about $100 billion in earned but unpaid wages every week in the US. So you can think of all of us having loaned some money to our employer uh, for the two weeks prior to payroll. And we think that will, that will start to go real, you know, um, real time. On the credit front, this has been an interesting trend that we've been watching. A lot of fintech offerings have started with debit. And we're starting to see some trends in, in credit that we think are interesting and that will continue going forward. The one that's probably the most um, visible in the press is you know, the buy now, pay later companies have really unbundled credit from the credit card. In fact, I think today, Affirm, which is one of the leading buy now, pay later companies, announced their IPO, you know, raising just under a billion dollars, I think a $9 billion valuation. So there's clear demand from consumers to access credit in a new and different way. Visa actually has a installments product, which is effectively allowing any bank or lender to offer credit at the point of sale. So we think that's a trend that will continue. Uh, but we're seeing other areas where fintechs are you know, sort of innovating in this area. There's a whole category of what we're seeing called responsible credit, where companies like Upgrade in the US are effectively converting a revolving credit line into a fixed payment line. Um, and so you have really this installment type plan on a sort of open credit line. We have apps like Step, which is a, you know, a team banking app, and they're figuring out how to offer a secure credit product so that teens can start to enter the financial ecosystem. So all these we think are exciting, um, you know, more to come in the ecosystem. A lot of fascinating things happening. And, and I think, you know, you, you really articulate there how, I guess, the changes that have been wrought by COVID have really, in a lot of ways, accelerated these trends and, and brought some of these ideas um, really to their, their critical tipping point and, and point of adoption. You remind me a little bit where you talk there about all the people that have started using their cards for, for online transactions for the first time. Uh, we actually cited a point from Visa in the IAF Deloitte series last year that in the first quarter last year, the March quarter alone, Visa saw more than 13 million customers in Latin America make their first ever online transaction, which I'm sure is a trend that would have been replicated all around the world. You also remind me of a point that uh, Hisham El Arab, the, the former chairman of CIB in Egypt, made about the, the mindset shift that's been necessary from branches to devices and, and how powerful this is in terms of the financial inclusion journey. And one of Hisham's points was that uh, in the case of, of their market, that there's, there's about 25 million people that previously were not viable customers for the bank to be able to serve in a profitable fashion whilst the bank was rooted in a bricks and mortar branches kind of context. Um, but it's it's needed that mindset shift to look beyond that and to look to these other means, the mediums that customers increasingly want to use. And that, that as you do that, suddenly those 25 million people do become 
viable uh, and profitable customers for the bank. And, and I'm sure a lot of what you're articulating uh, is really reinforcing that in a, in a broader, broader context. Right. And I think that is certainly true with many other, you know, sort of technology innovations, which is at first they can be disruptive, but then they tend to expand the market. Actually, one of my favorite examples that we're looking at is how we really are recreating a new type of community bank. So if you sort of go back, you know, 30 or 40 years in the U.S., you had the emergence of these community banks whose function was to serve an individual geography, right? I might understand the farming community in a part of you know, rural Iowa. And so as a bank, I'm better positioned to serve those customers. But what does that look like online? And what we're seeing is there are very large online communities that look like these community banks. There are banks focused just on immigrants. Now, these immigrants are not in one geographic location, they're a class of customer. There are banks who are focused on, you know, the Black and Latinx communities. These are, you know, traditionally underserved and neobanks are finding this community online and effectively creating a thriving bank. Uh, We talked about a company that went through our fast track program called Daylight that's serving the LBTQ plus community. They estimate there's 30 million people that they can serve in that community. That's a very large community bank that really wasn't possible to go after in a brick and mortar sense that we're seeing emerge online. And we think this trend will continue as entrepreneurs and fintechs and traditional banks figure out how to access these communities in an authentic way. And it, it really does uh, sort of seem and harken back to the, the traditional community banks that have emerged in the U.S. And technology is a powerful enabler for that, but it's not always about technology. It's it's probably more importantly about the customer. And, and you remind me there a little of the point that uh, FDIC Chairman Yelena McWilliam made on uh, on episode fifty of FRT, where she cited that that one of the very few new banking licenses issued in recent years was actually for a, an Amish bank for, for the Amish uh, communities in eastern Pennsylvania, and that it was a remarkably innovative platform they had because it was about having the bank is essentially operating from a truck that would go around and visit the communities, visit the, the customers themselves, that the bank would come to them and, and save them from the lengthy journeys by horse and buggy into town that they're otherwise having to make. So uh, wherever we can innovate to, to help the customer. That's a terrific example. Actually, I, I need to add that to my list of examples. I had, I had never heard that before. I mentioned at the outset the webinar that we had in July on the future of fintech, uh, which I think was a great and wide-ranging discussion that we had together with Australian fintech minister Jane Hume. Uh, and Jane's actually just been promoted too in the, the recent ministerial reshuffle. She's now got an expanded remit uh, that includes the digital economy uh, within her portfolio. And we also had Zia Zaman of, of MetLife Asia with us on that, on that occasion. But one of the really striking points for me out of that discussion was where you highlighted some of the innovations that Visa has been pursuing to help enable the connectivity between different new payments platforms. We've seen a lot of these greater innovations emerge within a particular market, often as a a closed system solution. And and you were able to articulate some of the work Visa's doing in linking a number of those together and providing the the cross-border connectivity and the access to to international markets. And I was just wondering if you could elaborate a bit more on on some of Visa's leading innovations in this space. Yeah, so I think the way to think about this is Commerce and payments is inherently global. Talked earlier about it's it's kind of hard to you know subscribe to Netflix using cash. 
you have global digital services such as Spotify and Netflix. You have global marketplaces in the form of Amazon and Alibaba and Etsy. Uh, and you have global business services. You know, if you are a startup and you need to access, you know, Amazon's uh, cloud services or Slack, all of these tend to be global companies who are reaching customers around the world. And there's a need to connect consumers who are often in domestic, you know, sort of closed loop ecosystems to these global systems. One of the ways that we've done that is really to focus on adding a visa credential to many of these closed loop domestic networks. So a good example of this would be our work with M-Pesa. And M-Pesa is a very successful mobile payment rails uh, started in Kenya, but really has branched out to have 24 million customers throughout the region, 173,000 merchants. But if you have an M-Pesa balance and you want to uh, set up a Slack account, that's hard to do. So M-Pesa is issuing visa credentials against that local balance in the, you know, in the um, you know, M-Pesa account and using the visa credentials in order to complete a transaction with a merchant. And that's happening in multiple parts of the world. If you were to go to you know, Latin America, you would see companies like Rappi, who've really become the super app for that region. It started in Colombia, but um, has spread throughout the region. And they have their Rappi Pay app also issuing a visa credential. So I can go and you know, take cash to one of the local areas where I can convert that cash into a Rappi Pay balance. And then my Rappi Pay app has a visa credential that now allows me to interact with any of these global companies. And you can repeat that with companies like Paytm, Tencent, Alibaba. So in that sense, you know, Visa is acting as this network that's connecting previously closed loop networks to each other and enabling commerce across the globe in a way that you know, we think benefits the consumers, also those domestic payment schemes and merchants. And if you're creating that sort of value, I think that's an important role for us to play. I'm glad you bring up the example of Impesa, and that's one that that you know we've commented on a lot in the past. That it has done a lot of terrific things in helping to promote financial inclusion within that closed loop domestic system. That it's had that limitation the moment you have an SME that's wanting to sell to tourists or to export. So I think the example you give there of, of being able to bring a, a visa credential and help provide that connectivity there is is really vital. And uh, uh, so I'm glad you you bring up that example. I was wondering perhaps if we we broaden out the financial inclusion angle and, and that discussion, and, and you brought up the point of financial inclusion earlier. Are there further uh, visa initiatives in terms of helping to promote greater uh, financial inclusion that you'd like to highlight also? Yeah, so, I mean, this is, this is an area where I think visa is, is, is very focused, um, both as a kind of you know, corporate goal uh, and because we think that the role we can play here can, can really reach these 1.7 billion folks who are not part of the you know, financial ecosystem. We have a couple of different ways to think about it. One is we have initiatives just to onboard fintechs into the payment ecosystem. And we have a program to make that journey as um, you know, sort of quick and painless as possible. It's our fast track program. And by broadening the number of fintechs that can access our payment rails, 
we are opening up payments to many, many underserved communities. So, you know, I'll give you a few examples. There's companies like Capway, which are bringing underrepresented communities into the payment ecosystem. They're a fast track client. We have companies like Empower Financing and X1 who are extending credit to demographics like undergrads and international students. All of these folks have the potential to be part of the payments ecosystem, you know, but are not. Clearly, our work with global clients such as M-Pesa and Rappi is really extending the opportunity for underbanked and unbanked folks to enter the payment ecosystem. And then we have other initiatives that are just focused on underrepresented folks in you know, developed markets. So, for example, we have a strong focus on supporting female-owned businesses. We have a number of initiatives where Visa is supporting small businesses owned by women. We focus on women-owned fintechs. So there, there are a couple that we've highlighted. One is um, actually a company uh, now mostly focused out of Australia called Airwallets run by a female founder and CEO. And our goal here is to bring more of these diverse voices and people into our payment ecosystem. That's been a focus for a while. And we, we think that fintech is a opportunity for those uh, types of founders to have a foothold into the payment ecosystem and to start to access consumers that were previously underrepresented in banking and payments. I agree. The, uh, the Airwallex example is a really interesting one. Uh, Lucy Liu from uh, Australia and I think now in Hong Kong and, uh, and the um, initiative she's built there. But I think also I'm really in- intrigued with what you mentioned about the, the fast track initiative and the, the emphasis in particular on onboarding. Um, and you remind me very much there without wanting to dwell too much on the, the IF Deloitte joint work that I mentioned earlier. But one of the things we've, we've heard a lot is about the challenges of financial institutions trying to mobilize their partnerships with a fintech firm and the challenges around a lot of the the onboarding uh, and often made more difficult by the fact that a financial institution on their part might not be ready to work with a fintech, might not be sufficiently agile, um, might not have the infrastructure that the fintechs are used to working with, but equally that the fintechs themselves are not used to working with uh, a large, uh, heavily regulated institution, um, perhaps haven't had the experience of dealing with the expectations around terms and conditions, around risk controls and the like, not always scalable or enterprise ready. And so you've had this this challenge of mobilising a lot of these partnerships from, from challenges that exist on both sides of that coin. And I think uh, to the extent that, that initiatives like yours with Fast Track can help to prepare fintech firms in, in you know, not only directly in what it helps to, to bring them onto the payments ecosystem, but probably prepares them a lot more broadly for other opportunities that they may face I think it's probably a really important point. Um, ben Davey at Barclays, I know, has also spoken about the need to help and, and prepare the, the fintechs for the onboarding, which is otherwise probably their greatest challenge, would you say? Yeah, I mean, this is, um, this is definitely uh, one of the challenges that we have in, in fintech, which we have all this entrepreneurial energy entering a highly regulated um, environment, and, and appropriately so. This, we're dealing with people's money. Uh, funds have to be secure, they have to be safe. Um, you know, different types of products are regulated in different ways. So Fast Track um, really has been focused on um, bringing those types of entrepreneurs into this payment space in a way that is, you know, safe, secure, uh, conforms with the regulations. And so if you think about what that looks like, 
there's um, you know a set of work we do around just the technology stack. You know, how do, how does a entrepreneur? In, let, let's take this example of you know Daylight, which is this you know neobank focused on the you know L, um, LBGT community. They understand that community well. They have a vision for offering a service in that community, but they don't necessarily um, have deep payment expertise around issuer processing. And so we help put together a set of issuer processes that are digital, um, uh, you know, secure and connected to the Visa ecosystem. Um, so now they have a, an opportunity to be able to accept you know, authorizations from a network like Visa. You know, then they'll need, at least in the U.S., uh, a sponsor bank, so someone who was actually holding the FDIC-insured deposits. And we have a set of partnerships there so we can connect the entrepreneurs to the appropriate banks. Outside the U.S., it's much more common for, for some of these fintechs to get a license directly from Visa, and we help with that process. Um, you know, then you have, um, once you have some of the uh, you know, technology stack built, um, you have to think about things like PCI um, uh, compliance and security. Um, and so there's a number of partners that we work with that help take on that, take on that burden. Uh, in fact, one, one of the trends that we're seeing that we're kind of excited about is um, uh, you know, companies that are really creating those digital vaults on behalf of fintechs. Um, you know, uh, um, one of them is a company called VGS. They're part of our fast track program. Um, they effectively house and store all of the PII on behalf of a fintech. And so now, you know, I can focus on going after my particular market with my value proposition and the technology and security are managed by third parties who are, you know, steeped in, in, in the expertise of that particular domain. So, you know, all of these things are making it easier for a fintech to launch a product. Um, in a way that's secure and compliant. Um, I mean, just, you know, for, for me personally, when I was, um, you know, working in the, in the payments uh, ecosystem and wanted to work with companies, uh, you know, like Visa and, and MasterCard and Amex and others, my frustration was always, can I just do this online? I mean, do I have to call, you know, someone at, at, at this company? And so what, one of the things we've done is move this entire process online. So you can... You can apply to a program. You can go through a licensing process. You can be approved into Fast Track. You can find the technology partners uh, that can help you launch, and all of that is available online um, as the sort of as you would expect as the primary native way for you know startups and fintechs to engage with a platform such as Visa. Probably my sort of most frustrating and, and also exciting part of this platform is, is something around card design. Uh, and this is an area where many, many fintechs want to customize uh, and, and, and create unique card designs that represent their brand. Unfortunately, historically, that's been a very difficult process. We have a set of rules based around you know, the regulations in that, in that market, um, uh, as, as well as you know, internal visa rules. And this whole process has been conducted offline. So uh, a fintech would you know, design a card, have to submit it to a sponsor bank, which then submits it to Visa, uh, and then feedback flows across email. Um, what we did instead in this fast track program is create an online card configurator that already has embedded in it 
and encode it in all of the various rules and regulations that conform to each of our five regions. And so now a fintech can just go online, submit a car design, see what it would look like both on the physical plastic as well as how would it look in Apple Pay or Google Pay and know that those designs conform to you know, all of the rules and regulations. That's a huge step forward and is an example of how we think companies should be interacting directly online with us you know, as opposed to having to figure out who to call it Visa. It's a great example. And I think in some ways, Terry, probably testimony to your own experience, the fact that you've been on the other side of the fence and that you've been the, the innovator trying to work with a lot of these large institutions and, and that you know, you know that history and those, that experience. And great to see that, that from Visa's side of the fence that you've been able to streamline a lot of that and, and make that progress. Uh, maybe if we could talk a little bit about Visa's work in the, the digital wallet space and uh, another area, I guess, of, of helping to open up some of the formerly closed loop systems. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and some of the, the partners that you're working with in that space. Yeah, so this is an area that fits very much inside of our thesis of being a network of networks. Uh, and, and just you know, a bit about that, you know, we think that Visa increasingly is moving funds across multiple networks. In some cases, that's VisaNet. In other cases, that may be a RTP network. Um, Sometimes we originate funds uh, on a card and terminate it in a bank account. You know, we acquired a company called Earthport that does that gives us you know connectivity to virtually every bank account you know on the you know on you know on the planet. So within that context, you know, we've seen digital currencies. You know, maybe five years ago when cryptocurrencies first emerged, there was this question of how would this impact payments, and so cryptocurrencies would be things like. You know, Bitcoin and Ether, um, and really they have turned out to be more of a you know digital commodity. Um, and um, there's uh, a number of our um, uh, you know banking clients who are offering their um, consumers the ability to purchase and hold these these um, you know digital assets. Um, and we think that that's a trend that will continue. You saw you know PayPal. Um, you know, offer this, you know, as has Square, as has many other neobanks. Um, but that's really a, a digital asset akin to digital gold um, and hasn't quite impacted payments. Um, however, what we started to see in the last couple of years is many of these crypto primitives applied to uh, fiat currencies. And so um, we've seen the emergence of central bank digital currencies. Um, and stable coins, which is really just using the uh, the same primitives to represent a token on a blockchain. In this case, the token actually represents fiat currencies. So you know, our approach has been always to serve our, our our merchants and our consumer clients in ways that are you know, secure uh, within the regulations um, and uh, and you know you know and safe. And so as we're starting to see central banks um, look at central bank digital currencies and the regulation frameworks around stable coins emerge, we think there's an opportunity for Visa um, to connect our payment ecosystem to some of these um, you know, open source blockchain networks. Um, an example of this is the work we're doing with digital currency wallets. Um, in the same way that we are putting Visa credentials against an impasa balance, 
we're putting Visa credentials against digital currency wallets, companies like you know, Coinbase, um, uh, which have got you know tens of millions of consumers who have a stored value and at some point want to spend that stored value. And we think that a good way to do that is through the Visa network. We've announced about 25 of these digital currency partnerships where a Visa credential is serving as the gateway between a stored value of digital currency and someone being able to spend in traditional fiat at a merchant. At least for now, our thesis is that the local supermarket is still going to want to be paid in fiat on the Visa rails, but a consumer may want to fund that transaction with the digital currency balance that's stored in their Coinbase account or in some you know, you know, digital currency wallet. So that's kind of one area of focus. The other kind of interesting trend that we're seeing is consumer demand for rewards in cryptocurrencies. And so we've seen a number of digital currency wallets offer a traditional Visa credit card that earns Bitcoin as a reward. And that is something which consumers value. In the minds of many consumers, this is a way to have additional savings. And so that's a trend that we're starting to see um, emerge and one that sort of blends the cryptocurrency world with the traditional fiat world in the form of rewards. Um, and then we've done a bunch of research. You know, I think from a visa standpoint, we've always had a very active visa research team. Our, our team actually based out of the Bay Area has done terrific work in looking at a number of different ways that blockchain technology will impact payments. We've had a number of innovations around uh, privacy protocols. There's a protocol called Zether, where we've collaborated with Stanford University. We're looking at you know, second layer scaling so that blockchains can actually process transactions faster. And that work continues. And then on the government engagement side, you know, we know that policy leaders and regulators continue to have you know, questions and concerns about digital currencies and a whole range of issues. And we think the best way to engage is to help with some of that work. And so, you know, we've had a number of policy recommendations through the World Economic Forum on the concept of central bank digital currencies. That's kind of a range of some of the things that we're doing. And again, we'll always be driven by, you know, safe, secure, trusted payments on our network and ensuring that cardholder or a consumer who has a Visa branded transaction will always fit under that sort of umbrella. Yeah, I noticed there was a, a great bit of research published by Visa in December. Um, your, uh, your head of crypto published a piece on CBDCs, and I think that's uh, a really interesting space to watch in 2021, where we see uh, the Chinese, the PBOC development obviously proceeding. We see a lot of chatter in different uh, central banks around the world that really picked up in the last quarter, uh, where others are perhaps looking to respond and, and emulate. Um, but also, I think a really interesting point you make there, Terry, about the, the notion of rewards. And um, I hadn't thought of that that concept of people wanting to be rewarded in, in Bitcoin or, or similar. But it is also an interesting question more broadly, you know, what, what new consumer patterns look like post-pandemic? That, that pre, pre-COVID, I think uh, so many of us, at least in the developed markets, we... Um, you know, very much valued our credit cards specifically from the purpose of the the air, air miles, the frequent flyer miles that we earned. Uh, that was probably the the most common form of of uh, rewards, and uh, in some cases, uh, almost became a parallel currency where people were using those rewards for to redeem in different ways. Um, as we see, perhaps differing patterns in in travel and and transport preferences, um, 
over the last year and whether or not those those habits stick. It throws some interesting questions as to where the, the rewards landscape may shift. And uh, obviously, you're, uh, you're a step ahead already thinking about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, it's, um, you know, Visa is the network. The, the folks who are thinking about it really are our fintech clients. They're, they're the ones who are, who are, who are innovating. Um, but we do think it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a value proposition that resonates with a large number of consumers. Um, and we think that, that there'll be a lot of experimentation, you know, in that area. You know, you, you, you mentioned some of the central bank digital currency efforts. As these begin to roll out, you know, our view is that banks and fintechs will have to engage with some of these digital currencies. There's a whole host of both, you know, technology and interoperability questions around how do banks and fintechs store and move digital currency across those networks and the you know sort of traditional fiat networks and that's where i think visa is playing a role today and probably also with that the interoperability of, of payments together with digital identity and uh, and indeed the interoperability of those systems both uh, across borders as well um, plenty more to look forward to so so terry thanks for joining us it's been a, another great conversation you, you opened my eyes a lot during that webinar back in in last july and you've, you've done so again here I'm just going to run through a, a few things that I thought really, really stuck out. I've, I've taken a lot of notes, but you know, a few things I'd emphasize. You know, I really like the point you made up front that disruptive technologies often firstly disrupt, but then they also have the effect of expanding the market and how a lot of the, the financial inclusion opportunity aligns with that. And you gave some great examples there across different markets you know, in developed economies, including in the US, about what it means in terms of people being able to get access to their money sooner, uh, employees and the like, where it's changing patterns in credit, but also what we're seeing in emerging markets and the uh, expanded reach there. I really like the point you made that, that commerce and payments are, are inherently global. Um, and so where we talk about the criticality of being able to link up different payments networks, uh, the way you articulated it in terms of, of the fact that you can't subscribe to Spotify using cash, that, that startups need access to the likes of Amazon, uh, and so the initiative of, of being able to add a visa credential to those different domestic payment networks, I think is really critical in terms of being able to help link up small businesses and, and customers uh, across borders. Um, it was a big theme that we talked about in some of the discussions at the Singapore FinTech Festival last month as well. Uh, and I think I really, uh, it really resonated for me what you talked about of, of the initiatives to be able to onboard FinTechs and, and bring them into the payments ecosystem. Uh, the Fast Track initiative, the work with companies like Capway, but also helping with helping to enable the fintech firms with licensing, and a, a great example I thought you gave about the process for card design, um, and not only about the process itself, but specifically the point of being able to integrate that, uh, integrate the plastic view together with Google Pay and Apple Pay and the like. Um, so I thought a lot of great examples there that, that really resonate with some of the themes that that uh, that we've heard across the industry, but illustrated with some some terrific examples. And I think lastly, the point you make there about uh, as you look into the crypto space and, and where the crypto space has evolved more towards CBDCs and stablecoins from a payments perspective, I totally agree with you, your view that the likes of Bitcoin are now more as investments rather than payment vehicles, the notion of so-called digital gold. But I can see that, that the value of the, the proposition you mentioned of being able to try and connect up that, that sense of the crypto investments that are held in one instrument to the, the fact that the merchant is still wanting to be paid in fiat, um, that you, you might still need the fiat or, or a fiat-like instrument for the, the transaction, but being able to link that up where that's funded for the, uh, the consumer by their investments held in another instrument, make all of that seamless and integrated, 
um, is a piece that I'm, I'm sure will become all the more topical uh, over the next year or two. So Terry, thanks for joining us. It's been a great discussion and and, uh, and thanks for the uh, the whirlwind tour you've given us of, of all the magnificent things that you have underway there at Visa. Thanks, Brad, and uh, terrific summary. You should summarize all of our notes. Uh, really enjoyed it and you know enjoy the work that you guys are doing. So thanks for having me on. Thank you. Now head on FRT, a few things I want to quickly highlight. Um, we're going to pick up that emerging world of central bank digital currencies. In fact, we're going to speak with Joanna Leibeck Lilia of Nordea in Stockholm, where of course she is very uh, very close to the world leading progress that the RICS Bank has been making in this space. We're going to look at further developments in digital identity with Greg Wolfmund, the Chief Executive Officer of SecureKey, and we're going to talk about anti money laundering and financial crime with Adrian Delacasa of Unicredit. So please stay safe and join us again for those upcoming episodes. I'm Brad Carr, thanks for listening on FRT.